welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11, 12, and 16, New American Standard Bible. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle, a second one resembling a bear, another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before. Daniel, chapter 7, verses 2 through 8, New American Standard Bible. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue looking at some of the key scriptures in the Bible that help trace the grand story of creation, fall, and redemption as it proceeds from Genesis to Revelation. Thus far, we've gone over six of the 15 verses that we want to focus on. So we've gone past the creation, fall, and flood, and we're working our way through God's unfolding plan of redemption. R.D., would you provide us a brief summary of where we are in the history of redemption? I'd be glad to. In our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we took a look at two of the four covenants in the Bible that are named for the person that the covenant was delivered to. Now, those four named covenants are the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant. Last time, we looked at the Abrahamic and the Mosaic Covenants. As we're progressing through the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, God's plan to save a people for himself that will one day join the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal fellowship in heaven, we have gone through three cycles of a pattern that recurs in redemptive history. Now, this pattern involves God selecting one person to be the focus of his overall plan for redeeming his people and for this person being a direct ancestor of the Messiah that God had promised as early as the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Unfortunately, God then watches that chosen person, or his descendants, or both, begin to depart from the commands that God has given to them. 
And so this process of selection, then disobedience, and that disobedience proceeding, it goes on for a while. And so at some point down the road, as it were, in the process of redemption, God has to do something to put the plan back on track. Thus far, we've seen God do that with Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Now, Adam, of course, was slightly different from Noah and Abraham because Adam was the one who got the whole plan started. Adam was the first created human being and then, of course, followed quickly by the provision of a partner for Adam and Eve. But Adam got the whole plan started. So at the time that God selected Adam, if you will, Adam was the only person on earth. But God still had selected Adam because God had chosen to create Adam as that first human being. Now, at the time that God made his selection of Noah and Abraham, through whom he would continue the biological line of the Redeemer, obviously the earth contained a lot more people than just the person that God selected. So Noah and Abraham were chosen out of an earth's population that was fairly sizable. But the one thing that all three of them had in common, Adam, Noah, and Abraham, was that in all three cases, God had given commands to those people that were not only binding on the person who received the commands directly, but also on their descendants. But as we covered on our last episode of Anchored by Truth, the covenant that God initiated with Moses was different from the covenants he initiated with Noah and Abraham. In Moses' case, the point wasn't biological. It was theological. Moses didn't found a new ancestral line that led to the Messiah. Instead, the Mosaic Covenant marked one of the major lines of demarcation in the time periods of redemption. Before Moses, God had given commandments to men, but God had not formally codified them into law. It's roughly similar to the Department of Transportation posting a speed limit on a road. Before the sign goes up, sensible drivers know approximately what speed is safe. After the sign goes up, though, there is now a defined upper limit on the speed and consequences for violations are clearly specified. Exactly. So when God gave the law to the ancient Jews, he was telling them very clearly about how they were to behave with respect to their relationship to him and with respect to how they were to behave in connection with other people. But God knew that neither the Jews nor anyone else was ever going to be able to keep the law perfectly. So, along with prescribing the law, God also prescribed a formal sacrificial system by which violators could atone for their violations. We now know that the primary purpose of this whole system, the law and the sacrificial system of atonement, was to point forward to the coming Messiah. That coming Messiah would do two things. First thing is that coming Messiah would keep the law perfectly. So that coming Messiah would fulfill all the requirements of the law that had been initiated, and it wasn't just the requirements per se of the Mosaic Covenant, but also the requirements that had been given even before that to Adam and to Noah. This Messiah would keep the law perfectly, and having kept the law perfectly, this Messiah would have then qualified to become a representative for all of mankind. The second thing that this Messiah would do was to provide a once-and-for-all sacrifice that would restore man's fellowship to God, the fellowship that Adam had thrown away in the Garden of Eden. So theologians sometimes refer to this as Christ's active obedience and passive obedience. His active obedience was in keeping the law perfectly so that Jesus, the Messiah, literally had no sins that required him to die personally. 
but Jesus did die sacrificially, so the value of his sacrifice could be imputed to anyone who would place their trust in Christ. So Christ performed the two functions that were absolutely necessary for man to have a restored fellowship with God. He was actively obedient to the law, but then his passive obedience was in sacrificing himself so that anyone who placed their trust in Christ could have the benefit of Christ's obedience credited to their account. So that takes us through the Noahic, Abrahamic, and Mosaic covenants. Today, we come to the final of the four covenants that bear the name of a specific recipient, the Davidic covenant. What step in the process of redemption did the Davidic covenant represent? Well, the Davidic covenant accomplished two important things. First, the Davidic covenant began the last of those cycles that we've been talking about, where God looked at all the people on earth, in this case, all the descendants of Abraham, and God selected just one who would continue the biological line to the coming Messiah. So David represents the last of the covenants named in the Bible for an individual through whom the biological line of the Messiah was continued. So David represented, if you can say it this way, as the last definitive narrowing of the Messiah's ancestral line down to a single person. And David's selection was so important in this regard that when Jesus finally came to prominence in Israel, that the Messiah's link to David was accepted as common knowledge. We see this illustrated in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 and 42, which says, quote, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Unquote. So even the hard-hearted Pharisees knew that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David, and that's what we heard about in our opening scripture from 2 Samuel. In chapter 7, God initiated the Davidic covenant. In that covenant, God promised King David that one of David's descendants would have an eternal throne. Yes, and your observation that David was the king of Israel when God established the Davidic covenant points to the second critical point that comes out of the Davidic covenant. And that point is that the royal nature of the coming Messiah would come from the fact that David was the rightful king of Israel at the time that God established the Davidic covenant. Now, in Scripture, one of Jesus' titles is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so that's just a Hebraic way of saying that Jesus is the ultimate King and Lord. Jesus is not just another King and Lord. Jesus is the ultimate King and Lord. And because Jesus is the ultimate King and Lord, no higher royalty is ever going to be possible throughout the entire history of, well, mankind. So even though Jesus was, as we said, a biological descendant of Adam, Noah, and Abraham, None of them was a king at the time that God initiated his covenant with that person. Jesus' rightful claim and his possession of a royal title is traced to King David, who was the anointed king of God's chosen people, the Jews, at the time God established the Davidic covenant. So, this again is a great illustration of the unity of Scripture. As God unfolds his plan of redemption, he not only takes care of the grand plan, but of each individual step that's necessary to bring all of its elements to perfect fulfillment. That's really an important lesson for all of us today. Sometimes we can see life, our lives, as being slightly chaotic. But the truth is that God has a plan for each of our lives. 
but we have to turn to him and trust in him to allow his plan to come to fruition. Yes, and this principle is clearly seen in the life of David. I mean, David had been promised very early in his life, probably when he was a teenager, that he would become the king of Israel. But he didn't actually become the king of Israel until he was around 30 years old. So probably a decade or a decade and a half had elapsed between the time that David received the promise that he would be king and the time that that promise came true. But nevertheless, despite the fact that it took 15 or more years, the promise that was made to David still came to fruition. And even though David fathered a line of kings, the last of those kings, insofar as an earthly kingdom is concerned, disappeared over 500 years before Jesus was born. And Jesus, despite the eternal dominion of his throne, has yet to reign as an earthly king, though he will, after he returns for his second coming. All of that is in the future, but we have no idea when, right? Right. Jesus could return in the next 10 minutes, but his return could still be centuries away. Now, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24:36 that no one besides God knows the hour, day, and I might add, decade or century when Jesus will return. But Jesus' return is absolutely certain, and the certainty of that return will be illustrated by the next of the 15 critical scriptures that we heard about today as our second opening scripture. Our second opening scripture was one of the passages from the book of Daniel, where Daniel receives a vision about the four empires that would dominate the Middle East from Daniel's time until the time that the Messiah would be born. Just as a reminder to everyone, Daniel received his visions while he was in Babylon, or one of the cities near Babylon. At the time Daniel received his prophecies, the Jews had been conquered by the Babylonians, and the vast majority of the Jews had been deported to Babylon or territory nearby, right? Right. You know, the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied before the deportation that because of the Jews' continued idolatry, they would be removed from their homeland, just as had been promised in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, Jeremiah prophesied that the exile would last 70 years, and that 70-year period of exile was determined by the number of years that the Jews had failed to honor the seventh-year Sabbath rest that God had commanded be done once the Jews actually reoccupied the promised land. In the book of Leviticus, God had told the Jews that every seven years they were to let that land have a rest. In other words, in that seventh year, the Jews were not to farm the land. In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1-4, through 4, the Bible says, quote, The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, The land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath, rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Yes. So, evidently, for 70 of those seven-year cycles, Between the time the Israelites re-entered the Promised Land, after they had left Egypt under Pharaoh, but before the Babylonian exile, which was several hundred years, evidently the Jews had failed to observe properly those Sabbath rests. So what God did in effect was brought about a period of enforced compliance for that commandment. But during this period of enforced compliance, when the Jews were away from their homeland, God did not just cease the unfolding plan of redemption 
God actually took another very important step in that overall plan of redemption. Because while the Jews were in exile under the Babylonian Empire, and then for a short period under the Persian Empire, God gave an overview to the prophet Daniel of how the period between the exile and the arrival of the Messiah would unfold. And that unfolding period would involve four successive empires that would be critical to the Jews and Palestine, their homeland. We now know that those four empires were the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And God used each of those empires in a particular way to prepare his people and the world for the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. What did God accomplish through the Babylonians? Well, simply put, God used the Babylonian Empire, the period of the Babylonian exile, to purge the sin of idolatry from the Jews. What about the Medo-Persian Empire? How did God use them in the plan of redemption? Well, God used a Persian emperor, Cyrus, to send the Jews back to their homeland. So God used the Persian Empire to end the period of exile and get the return of the Jews back to their homeland started. So the Persian emperor Cyrus started the return of the Jews back to their homeland, but another later Persian emperor named Artaxerxes actually started a very important prophetic time clock ticking. And that time clock was going to mark out the exact period between the decree that Artaxerxes gave to the prophet Nehemiah and to Jesus' triumphant arrival in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's a remarkable prophecy, possibly the most remarkable prophecy in the entire Bible because of the degree of its specificity, not only the details of what was prophesied, but also in the amazing accuracy of the time period that was predicted exactly almost 500 years before the event. And anyone who would like more information about this remarkable prophecy can either consult the book, The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, by Dr. Harold Honer, or listen to our podcast entitled, Prophetic Perfection, From Exile to Exaltation. And the Persian Empire did at least one other very important thing. God used the Persians to stir up the Greeks, so much so that Alexander the Great became the most successful conqueror of all time. He conquered the entire territory between Greece and India, including down to Egypt, in just a little over a decade. And not only did Alexander bring with him his military prowess, but he also brought with him the Greek language and culture. And the Greek language would become so pervasive throughout the Middle East and throughout the territory that the Greeks had conquered that the Greek language was still the most commonly used international language even during the time of Christ, which would have been more than 300 years after Alexander's initial conquests. So, the Greeks spread their language and culture, the language and culture that was still dominating Palestine during the time of Christ. What did the final empire foreseen by David, the Roman Empire, contribute to the plan of redemption? Well, we probably don't have enough time left to really do a thorough consideration of all of the impacts that the Roman Empire had on God's plan of redemption, because they just had so many. But in the time that we have left, we can maybe hit a few of the high points. Certainly one of the most important impacts that the Roman Empire had on God's plan of redemption was in the Romans' institution of what was called the Pax Romana, which is a way of saying the Peace of Rome. 
You see, the Romans were a very practical people, and they were great builders. And above pretty much everything else, the Romans prized stability and prosperity. For them, economic success was very, very important, and they knew that one of the ways that you achieved economic success was to have a stable territory that you were governing. So the Romans had made it very safe to travel throughout their empire. Before the Romans established their network of roads and the network of garrisons that they had periodically stationed along the roads, it was actually quite dangerous to travel even sometimes short distances in the ancient world. But once the Romans got everything settled down and they imposed a very tight-fisted peace on everything, it became very safe to travel throughout the empire. That really facilitated the spread of the gospel after Jesus' resurrection. This particular fact certainly was one of the most important effects of God using the Romans as part of his overall plan of redemption. Now, there's another sad and unfortunate part about the Romans and their impact on the plan of redemption, and that is, sadly, the Romans were really good at killing people. If you opposed the Romans, they would do away with you quickly. They had done away with large armies and entire nations through their military prowess. Well, that is a sad but important note. But let's step back and return to the thread that we've been following through our 15 critical scriptures. We've now gone through the fact that God has established four named covenants, ones for Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Three of those covenants represented times when God made a selection from all the people on earth to designate a man through whom God would continue the biological line of the coming Messiah, Jesus. The Mosaic Covenant represented the division of the theological progress of the plan of redemption by codifying God's expectations for human behavior into formalized law. And with our scripture from Daniel, we have seen that after the final designation of the biological ancestry of the Messiah, God gave Daniel a political and historical vision of how the future of the Messianic people, the Jews at the time, would proceed forward until the time that the Messiah would actually arrive. Do I have that right? Yes. When you go back and look at it in historical context, at the time Daniel received the prophecy that we heard in our second scripture, Daniel was living in the Babylonian Empire, and he lived through the early part of the Medo-Persian Empire. And during that period, the Jews were not in the land that God had promised to them. They were a dispossessed people living in a foreign land. They had no king. They had no kingdom. They had no temple. They had no freedom, and they had very few resources. So the things had to look as dark as possible for the fulfillment of a promise that one day the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would come out of their midst. Their situation would have been deemed by any earthly analysis as hopeless. Well, it would take another 600 years before that promise of the Messiah would come true. But it did come true. And the important thing that we have to remember is that during those very bleak circumstances, God was still reigning on his throne as the sovereign. And in his own good time, God brought his will and his promises to his precise fulfillment. And that's a good lesson for us today. In our own lives and times, we can start to feel as though the circumstances facing us are hopeless. But as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, quote, with God, all things are possible, unquote. The key, though, is to make sure that we are seeking the will of God and acting in accordance with the Bible which contains His revealed will. God doesn't promise to give us anything or everything our brains might conjure up. 
but he does promise that he can do those things for us that look impossible from a human standpoint. Yes. Our scripture from the book of Daniel that we heard today was given over 500 years before Jesus was born, and now we're over 2,000 years after Jesus' birth. So we have a perspective in time that gives us a lot more insight into how God is going to accomplish his plan of redemption. Now for us, the Messiah, Jesus, has already come, and the Messiah has already done his work. Not only did he do his work, but Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he sits at the Father's right hand, where he lives to make intercession for us, for his children. Not only that, but the canon of Scripture has been completed with the addition of the New Testament to the Old. And just about the one thing that everyone agrees on is that most, if not all, of the conditions for Christ's return have been fulfilled. And so because the conditions are now ready so that Jesus could return to the earth for the second time, our purpose now is the proclamation of the gospel to tell as many people as possible about Jesus, about his kingdom, about his coming the first time, and about his coming back, so that as many people as possible will hear that gospel before Christ does return. You know, Christ himself gave us this mission, which is sometimes referred to as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And the Apostle Paul gave us an expanded version of our mission in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Quote, But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? Unquote. That is why the scriptures say, quote, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news, unquote. It's up to us now to do the sending and the telling. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Because Christian missionaries are such an integral part of carrying good news all over the world, today, let's listen to a prayer for Christian missionaries, whether they're being sent to distant countries or across the street. A prayer for Christian missionaries. Father of redemption, you are a powerful and loving God and our ever faithful tower of refuge and strength. You are a God who takes pleasure in rescuing lost sheep and in bringing them into your kingdom. You are the God of the ends and the means. May all the earth sing praises to your name. Lord, the Bible rightly asks how the lost can hear of the salvation available through Christ's life, death, and resurrection unless preachers are sent to proclaim the gospel. We know they cannot, and today a great many of your faithful people continue to leave their families and homes to travel to remote corners to preach your message of hope and good news. Today, we want to pray for all these missionaries and to thank you for your provision of them. Lord, we know that many missionaries preach the gospel in lands where your word is not welcome. In fact, in some lands to speak about you brings a sentence of death. We know that there are many places where government leaders and authorities will exercise the full power of their offices to oppose and persecute your messengers. Therefore, we pray for special protection 
for all those who preach in these dangerous countries and places. We ask that you watch over these missionaries, protecting them as they travel and minister and confounding the efforts of those who seek their harm. We also pray that you give them fertile fields in which to plant your word, which is the seed of true life. We pray that you would open the hearts of those who hear the word. Give them the courage to accept Christ, even as they risk their lives to do so. Bring leaders out of the converted so that ministries and churches once begun will continue to grow and expand. Provide the resources the missionaries and churches need to sustain themselves, whether it be Bibles, educational literature, money, or resources for daily living. Show us how you would have us help and serve in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. While not all are called to go or preach, we know that there is a way that all of us can contribute. Help us to be persistent in our prayers and make us fervent in our desire to see your word spread and your kingdom grow. Christ commanded that his word be spread until he returns again. So in his holy name, we pray for his kingdom and his messengers. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.